My name is Hilding Nielsen, and you're listening to the Root and STEM podcast, a podcast exploring issues and stories in STEAM education. On this episode of the Root and STEM podcast, we explore the intersection of Indigenous and Western knowledges of the universe. Hi, I'm Hilding Nielsen. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Physics and Physical Oceanography at Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador, where I study stellar astrophysics, exoplanets, indigenous astronomies, space, and all kinds of fun things beyond the Earth. Depending on the time of year, I spend a fair bit of time in the classroom teaching astrophysics or introductory astronomy to students. I spend time giving talks and presentations to communities across the country and the world. I try to do a fair bit of writing, uh, professional journal articles, like how we do discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics, and just having a bit of fun. When we teach astronomy in university, we use something called the scientific method, where you make an observation, you come up with a theory, a hypothesis, you, you experiment, and that's a great methodology for doing science. But it's not the only way we can do science and learn about nature and the universe. For many indigenous peoples, and not all, but for many, you know, there are different ways of doing science, whether it's through long, long-term observations over, over centuries and oral traditions, through stories, and through, and through other kind of wisdoms, knowledges. And the, those two things, the way we do Western science and indigenous sciences, can work together. Uh, so the elder Albert Marshall and elder Mardina Marshall devised this idea called two-eyed seeing, where you can bring the Western knowledge of science with indigenous knowledges to come up with a deeper uh, view of the universe or nature. And so I think it gives us just an, uh, yet another avenue to explore uh, nature and the universe. Science and the way we do with astrophysics is born out of something from centuries ago. You know, Isaac Newton, Tycho Brahe, you know, all these great scientists in Europe. And we come so trained in a system that it's very hard to open ourselves up as scientists to other methodologies like indigenous knowledges. And so bridging that gap is not always easy. And sometimes it actually doesn't exist because there are times when indigenous knowledge just disagrees with Western science and we have to accept that too. So it's, uh, it takes work, but I think it's the reward for doing that work is, uh, is very valuable. Well, we look at stars, there are stars that will live just for a few millions of years. And there are stars that will live past the age of the universe. And the sun is somewhere in between. The sun has a lifespan of about 10 billion years for a universe that's about almost 14 billion years old. So some of the criteria for whether it can host life first is whether or not the star can live long enough for life to evolve. And that takes billions of years. The other criteria has to do with, you know, what kind of radiation the star emits. Like some stars that are really, really hot, most of the radiation is ultraviolet, which is kind of bad for us, for life like us. or other stars that are really cool called M-dwarfs, you know, they emit very infrared light, and but they're so cool that if, for life to evolve, it has to be very close, we expect it should be very close to the star. So we kind of think stars like us are the best case scenario, um, which are sun-like, you know, 6,000 degrees Celsius, and make up about 7% of stars in the night sky. So we define habitability as planets where we think we can survive. We haven't actually discovered a habitable planet yet. And we typically define them as planets that sort of have the mass and size like the Earth. We're looking for planets that might have an atmosphere like the Earth, which is very hard to do. 
and are far enough away from their host star that the temperature is just right for us. Like, like what we see on Earth, you know, uh, you know, zero to twenty degrees Celsius kind of range on average. And you know, we haven't really found we haven't found any of those plants. That's what we're looking for. But it's also kind of a narrow perspective because when we look at our solar system, there are moons around Jupiter that might host life, and they're very different. So we don't have a great um, understanding of that. And we, in science, we tend to judge this habitability relative to the Earth. I wouldn't want to have to live on Mars. Uh, you know, we're talking minus 50 degrees Celsius, but that's not the worst part. The worst part is there's no atmosphere or no re significant atmosphere. So when you're on Mars, you'd have to have a contained kind of bubble so you can have your oxygen and atmosphere. And there's no real soil for growth. So you'd have to find ways to do farming and all that stuff. But in the past, we think Mars might have been more habitable like Earth. We think there might have been running water like rivers and flows. Maybe if there was running water, that means there was an atmosphere. Maybe there was the chance for plant life. So at some point, at least in the past, Mars was probably habitable as we understand it on Earth. Earth is the only known planet to have water in all three states of liquid, solid, and gas. Now, there are moons around Jupiter, for instance, like Europa, which it looks like a giant snowball. But from observations, there, we think that it's a shell of ice. And deep down, there is a very salty ocean, subsurface ocean. And so maybe that is a place for life. But, you know, we're, we're thinking like kind of Dead Sea, kind of salty. So probably hard to understand what kind of life. But that's a, it's a tantalizing hint. The universe is a very big place. So there's 100 billion stars in our galaxy, and there's probably 100 billion galaxies in our universe. For us to be the only place in all that universe to have life that's, even if intelligent life, and I'm pretty sure there might be people in the audience who might question whether we're really intelligent, you know, it just doesn't make sense that we're the only ones. You know, if life happened on Earth, as we understand it, fairly quickly, fairly efficiently, it, like everything happened just right, because everything happened just right here, we can get, gather that there might be situations where things aren't ideal, as ideal as on Earth, that can life can evolve there. And we kind of know this from an experiment in the 1950s, where the scientists basically tried to make an atmosphere like the Earth, put electricity into it, and see if they can generate things like DNA. And they did. But what happened is the atmosphere they chose to mimic the Earth in the, in the beginning of its life it's not the same kind of atmosphere that we actually think it has today. So this kind of experiments are very efficient. So we're pretty sure to get from no life to DNA, the building blocks of life is fairly efficient. So I, even if it's super rare, you know, we can get to that point fairly easily. But if life is super rare, there are still 100 billion stars in our galaxy. You know, so super rare is one in 100 billion, but then the 100 billion galaxies, you know, that's a lot of possibilities. We tend to use radio in this kind of uh, perspective because this is what humans know. You know, the radio technology was developed almost a century ago now. And when we developed it, we were just broadcasting out in the space randomly. We never really thought about it. And it was when science kind of thought about how we were broadcasting in the space that perhaps we could hear signals coming from space. And we observe things in the radio all the time in space, natural phenomenon. But we, don't, we haven't found anything that can be an artificial signal. 
And so we kind of stick with radio because so far because that's sort of what we understand. Scientists also want to look for things like really extreme technology. You know, what if there are civilizations that build giant structures around their host star? Could we maybe see them interact with the star by blocking light or reflecting light? And maybe see them using our optical telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope or the new James Webb Space Telescope. Or even on Earth with things like giant telescopes in Chile and Hawaii. A lot of scientists worry that sending messages out is a bad idea because of history on Earth. We've had so much bad history with powers coming from Europe and dominating what they saw as lesser societies that scientists are very much worried about the same thing happening from space. I kind of look at it another way. Societies that can live and thrive for billions of years and, and have the technology well beyond us have to find a way to coexist and live and live in some sort of harmony with the nature around them, whether it's nature on their planet or nature within their whole solar system or so on. And I think those societies, if they exist, are probably more likely to be kinder. They might be looking down on us in some respects, but they might look, be looking down on us in a more benevolent way or a kinder way, or they might just probably just ignore us. So many movies are about alien invasions. They're coming for our resources or coming for something else. But there are so many things in our galaxy that have the same resources. They don't have to interact with us to maintain those societies. So I think for the most part, aliens would probably just ignore us. You know, I always worry when we're in classrooms that we kind of segregate students who are automatically good at the way we teach STEM and STEAM from the students who have trouble with it. And we're not engaging those students in the ways that necessarily help them. You know, we can understand math through equations, but there are other ways to study math. Or we can understand astronomy through, you know, data and images or through math or through art. And I think we can really improve STEAM and bring and helping students really come to both STEM and engage with STEM is to see it from all different kinds of perspectives, from the arts, from the mathematics, from the computational from just pictures in nature, and then seeing themselves participating in, in STEM and STEAM. You know, we do science every day. We just don't always think about it, whether it's, you know, gardening, whether it's, uh, you know, fixing a car, whether it's doing something else. But we do science every day. And so I think realizing that we're all scientists is a very valuable way to move forward as students and as teachers. We all live under one sky. We all have the same rights to that sky. So if you have, want to do astrophysics, if you want to do science with an, and looking in the night sky, you already have half the tools there because it's over our head, above us. And so just engage with it in the ways you want to. And maybe at some point you'll get to the point where you have to learn some of the harder tools like programming languages or you know, for calculus. But just remember that because everybody lives under the sky, they bring their own story to the field. And we need more of those stories, particularly from groups that are underrepresented. For more about space and science, check out the Root and STEM magazine at pinwa.com or more episodes of the Root and STEM podcast available to download on your streaming platform of choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. <laughs>